0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. As we just reminded ourselves in that opening act of the presence of God, the opening act of our meditation, these meditations are times of prayer, times to talk with our Lord. And for a Christian to pray is to pray in Christ. For a Christian to pray, is to pray through Christ. And as we know, so many liturgical prayers end with that formula. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Or they end, through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. Or even more simply, through Christ our Lord. Amen. And so this praying with and in Christ is everywhere in the liturgy, and it's everywhere in the church, and it's something that has biblical roots. We see it in the Bible, we see it in the gospel. I think we see it in a special way in those different scenes in the gospel when we see Jesus himself in prayer. Because when we see Jesus in prayer in the gospel, we always see his disciples with him in one way or another. We see them accompanying him in prayer. Perhaps the most striking example of this is in the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 9. We read there, Once when Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? It's kind of a mysterious formulation in its simplicity. Once when Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him. It's like, well, which one is it? Was he alone, or were the disciples with him? And that ambiguity there gives us a sense of the mystery of what prayer is. It gives us a small glimpse into the mystery of prayer, especially our Lord's Prayer. To pray, on the one hand, is always to be alone with God. It's to direct ourselves uniquely to God. And this oneness, this aloneness, happens even if other people happen to be around. So our Lord can truly be alone with God and yet have the disciples with Him. On the other hand, this this combination of our Lord's being alone and the presence of His disciples also teaches us that our Lord's prayer opens up to contain His loved ones. His relationship with God opens up to contain and include His disciples. Those who have followed him, such that his relationship with God becomes, in a sense, our relationship with God, and so all of our prayer is united to Christ's prayer. And the same thing we ask our Lord for the grace, Lord, give us the grace that our own hearts expand in our prayer. That in our prayer the same thing can be can be true can be said of us, Lord, that we're alone with you in our prayer, and yet. Our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, our family members are always with us. They're always in our heart. They enter into our relationship with you. There's one scene in the gospel which tells us that the disciples were not just with him, but they they literally followed our Lord into his place of prayer. We see this in, in the first chapter of the gospel of St. Mark. There we read, in the, morning, in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. Putting ourselves with our hearts and our minds and our imaginations into the scene, we can imagine the disciples waking up and noticing that Jesus is gone. Peter who's a somewhat impulsive and somewhat nervous and emotional character perhaps wakes up first and he's a bit upset that Jesus has beaten him out of bed again and we can imagine him going around that around that campsite that campfire around which the disciples and the apostles have all made their beds and he's kind of hurriedly rousing the other apostles waking them up, shaking them into action. Come on, let's go. He's gone to pray again. He's beaten us again. Let's go and find him. And perhaps we can even imagine that he has a particularly difficult time waking St. John. St. John, as we know, was an adolescent when he was called by our Lord. He was probably in his mid to late teens. And as some of you may have experienced, Teenage boys can be particularly difficult to get out of bed in the morning. I remember my younger brother was like was like a bag of cement. I mean, it was almost impossible to, to move him. He was praying in a certain place. We read in another scene. And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And so we can put ourselves into the second scene that we've, again, gotten out of bed and followed our Lord and followed his track. We, we know by now, being his disciples, where he tends to like to pray. And this time we follow him there and we see him praying. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so this disciple must have been struck. He must have been intrigued by what he saw when he saw Jesus pray. By what he saw when he saw the Son of God alone praying to God the Father. Perhaps he was struck by by the look of love on our Lord's face. Perhaps he was struck by the sense of peace that prevailed. Perhaps he was struck by the intensity of our Lord's recollection of his attention, putting all of his heart and soul into being in, in God the Father's presence. But whatever he was struck by, He wants it for himself. He's daring. He says to our Lord, after seeing our Lord pray, precisely after seeing how our Lord prayed, he says to our Lord, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. What a great request we can make of our Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us, right now, in our own time of prayer. We, all of us, are alone with God. We can ask our Lord, Lord, teach us to pray, Teach me how to deal with God. Teach me how to deal with you. Teach me how to relate to you. Teach me how to love you. Lord, teach us to pray. And our Lord doesn't doesn't let him wait very long, right? He's a a good teacher. He answers the the question right away. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And the rest of the Our Father continues. When you pray, say, Father. In the other Gospels, of course, Jesus adds the pronoun our before Father. When you pray, say our Father. This is how you are to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Of course, this is an amazing truth of faith, an amazing truth of faith revealed to us in the prayer of Jesus Christ, revealed to us in his teaching, his apostles and us how to pray. When you pray, say Father. This is how you are to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. And in this meditation, we can focus on one aspect of this our Father. The simple fact that God is ours. God is our Father, which means that God is ours. God belongs to us. He belongs to us. As the Psalms put it, Domine Deus Meus is two. O Lord, You are my God. Domine Deus meus estu, O Lord. You are my God. All the saints have always been struck by this idea, by this truth, that God, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, infinitely good and lovable, a perfect being, a being who radically transcends this world, the source of all perfection. Is truly theirs. He belongs to them. In some way, out of love, he's made himself their possession. Here's how Saint Jose Maria, Saint Jose Maria, Saint Josemaria, the founder of Opus Dei, expresses this truth in this way. In the way, A wonderful book that helps us to pray. Consider, Saint Jose Maria writes. Consider what is most beautiful and most noble on earth, what pleases the mind and the other faculties, and what delights the flesh and the senses, and the world and the other worlds that shine in the night. The whole universe, well, this, along with all the follies of the heart satisfied, is worth nothing, is nothing and less than nothing, compared with this God of mine, of yours. This God of mine, of yours, so far transcending the goodness of the world. A few days ago, maybe many of you saw it live, Pope Francis reflected on the gospel passage of Jesus asleep in the boat when the the storm comes. And among other things, Pope Francis mentioned that this time of the coronavirus, this time of this pandemic, throughout the world, is an opportunity to get our lives back on track with respect to God. And I think one of the biggest ways to do this, to get our lives back on track with regard to God, is to grow in this conviction that God is mine. And perhaps in the first place, to grow in the conviction that that God is God, that God exists. And that he's truly divine. He's the greatest good in my life. He's the most important thing, so to speak, in my life. The most important thing in my life is God. And he's truly mine. Oh God, you are my God. Deus, Deus meus est This is how Pope Francis put it. It is not the time of your judgment, referring to this time of the coronavirus pandemic. It is not the time of your judgment, but of our judgment. A time to choose what matters and what passes away. A time to separate what is necessary from what is not. It is a time to get our lives back on track with with regard to you, Lord, and to others. It is a time to get our lives back on track with regard to you, Lord, and to others. And in a way, for all of us believers, this could be a great hidden blessing during this time in which so many other things are taken away from us. When so many things are taken away from us, the truth is we still have God. Our financial security may have been taken away or at least threatened. Our normal social interactions have been taken away. For many of us, our daily routine, our daily work has been taken away. For some of us, our health has been taken away. Perhaps some of you listening know people who have been infected or who have died. And all of these losses, however severe and uncomfortable and sorrowful they may be, all of these losses can be an opportunity to distinguish between God and everything else in my life. which is so important for a believer. And the world and the other worlds that shine in the night, the whole universe, while this, along with all the follies of the heart satisfied, is worth nothing, is nothing, and less than nothing compared with this God of mine, of yours. There's an aspiration that kind of summarizes this this truth that we're considering here. And it's an aspiration, a short prayer that captivated St. Francis of Assisi. And I think it could be helpful and fruitful for us to pray, to pray about, and to pray with these days. In Latin, the aspiration goes, Deus meus et omnia. It's very simple. Deus meus et omnia. My God and my all. My God and my all. On at least one occasion, St. Francis spent the whole night repeating this prayer, meditating on this prayer, letting it fill his soul, letting it fill his heart. My God and my all, Deus meus et omnia. It's a similar lesson to the one that our Lord himself, our Lord Jesus, taught St. Martha. We all remember that familiar scene Martha, Mary, and Lazarus have received Jesus as a guest in their home. Mary is sitting at his feet, giving him her full attention. The Gospel tells us that she's listening to him. Here's what we read in the Gospel of St. Luke. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. In our prayer today, Lord, we are in your presence. Lord, help us to hear these comforting words, these important words. You are worried and distracted about many things. There is need of only one thing, only one thing is necessary. Don't worry about anything else. And what is this one thing necessary? What is this one thing needful? Our Lord's praise of Mary gives us a great hint. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. And that better part is what we find Mary doing in this moment, in this scene. She's sitting at his feet. And she's listening to him. Which means she's focusing all of her attention on Jesus, who is God. And so, the one thing necessary, the better part for Mary and for us, will also be to focus our attention on God, to focus our loving attention on Jesus, on the Holy Spirit, on God the Father, to love God directly. The one thing necessary is to have God as God, to let God truly be God in my life. There's another passage in which our Lord expresses the same truth, the same same fundamental idea, but in terms of a commandment. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's only one thing necessary. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in a way, I think the opportunity that, that presents itself to us in these, in these very special and strange and difficult times as Christians is precisely that it's a little bit easier to do this. It's a little bit easier to do this, to love God above all things, to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength, when other things have been taken away from us. It's easier to turn our attention to God when there's, less, when there's less to distract us from Him. It's easier to love Him above all things when He has less competition. And this is one of the ways that we can use this time to get our lives back on track with God. Lord, help me, help me to allow this forced simplicity of my life Lord, help me to use this new simplicity of my life as an opportunity to love you more, as an opportunity to put you first. As an opportunity, Lord, to find my happiness in you and not so much in other things. This is a great lesson. This is a great lesson of this time, and really it's a lesson of any time of our life. The things that have been taken away from us, the things that are threatened the things that might be taken away from us are not God. Only God is God. Only He is the one thing necessary. There's a wonderful prayer, and I always like to share this with people who haven't heard it or who are going through times of anxiety or worry. It's a prayer from St. Teresa of Avila. She writes, Let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you all things are passing away god never changes patience obtains all things whoever has god lacks nothing god alone suffices what a powerful message what a great truth whoever has god lacks nothing god alone suffices And so if we make God the one thing necessary, if we love God above all things, we we would truly come to, to a great peace. Let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God, by comparison, never changes. He's always good. He's always loving us. He's always taking care of us. Now, practically speaking, how do we do this? How, Lord, can I put you first? How can we put God first? How can we experience the truth of this prayer? It's a nice idea. They're nice words. Beautiful words. But how can I come to live this, to experience it? Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Well, we can start by, by giving God more of our time. I think most of us not all of us, but most of us, have more time now than we did did before. One way or another. Perhaps just because there's no commute. What are we using that time for? It it'll would be, it'll be a wonderful thing as a Christian to use that time for God. To use that time to cut out a period and a place in my day where I give God my full and loving attention where I devote myself exclusively and entirely to prayer. That will be one great way of trying to put God first, of trying to make Him the one thing necessary, of trying to love Him more. And then throughout the day, we can make more acts of faith, we can make more acts of hope, we can make more acts of love. All of these things delight our Lord. All three of these exercises of our soul, acts of faith, acts of hope, acts of love, make our Lord absolutely thrilled with us. God our Father is thrilled with us when we believe in Him, when we trust Him, when we love Him and others. Another thing we can do is, is, since there's so many uh, moments of worry, of anxiety, of concern, both for ourselves and for for others, is to try to accept and offer our Lord whatever we find difficult in our situation. And to just to tell him that in a simple way, Lord, I don't like this. Lord, I don't like this, but I accept it out of love for you. Lord, I don't like this, but I accept it out of love for you, and I offer it for the people who are working on the front lines in the hospitals. Or I offer it for all the people who have already contracted the coronavirus. Or I offer, Lord, for all those who are very seriously disadvantaged economically because of this situation. But most of all, Lord, I offer the difficulties that I'm going through simply out of love for you. Because I trust you. You are my God. Deus, Deus meus to, Oh God, you are my God. Deus meus et omnia my God and my all. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. In these days of of more or less strict quarantine, of being isolated from others, there's come to my mind the, the story of one very holy man. He's actually uh, been declared venerable in the church, so he's on his way to beatification and if God wants beatification and, and canonization. And he was a Vietnamese bishop, Francis Xavier Van Tuan. And eventually he was a cardinal. He was, he was made a cardinal by St. John Paul II. And he, soon after being um, ordained a bishop in Vietnam, he was arrested by the uh, communist government there. And, uh, and ended up spending 13 years in prison. And nine of them were in solitary confinement. He died in, in 2002. And this is an account of, of what he went through spiritually upon being arrested and imprisoned and uh, isolated. These are his own words. From the very first moment of my arrest, the words of Bishop John Walsh, who had been imprisoned for 12 years in Communist China, came to my mind. On the day of his liberation, Bishop Walsh said, I have spent half my life waiting. It is true. All prisoners, myself included, constantly wait to be let go. I decided then and there that my captivity would not be merely a time of resignation, but a turning point in my life. I decided I would not wait. I would live the present moment and fill it with love. For if I wait, the things I wait for will never happen. The only thing that I can be sure of is that I am going to die. I decided I would not wait. And we're not exactly obviously prisoners in in, in in a communist prison. We're not in solitary confinement, maybe for a couple of weeks, but not for years. And yet, nevertheless, we can have a little bit of the same of the same mentality creep in—that we're kind of just waiting for this to pass. We're waiting for things to get back to normal. We put our life on pause. And this is a wonderful attitude. I decided not to wait. I would live the present moment and fill it with love. For if I wait, the things I wait for will never happen. The only thing that I can be sure of is that I am going to die. His account continues. No, I will not spend time waiting. I will live the present moment and fill it with love. A straight line consists of millions of little points. Likewise, A lifetime consists of millions of seconds and minutes joined together. If every single point along the line is rightly set, the line will be straight. If every minute of a life is good, that life will be holy. Alone in my prison cell, I continued to be tormented by the fact that I was 48 years old in the prime of my life, that I had worked for eight years as a bishop and gained so much pastoral experience, and there I was isolated, inactive, and far from my people. One night, from the depths of my heart, I could hear a voice advising me. Why torment yourself? You must discern between God and the works of God. Everything you have done and desired to continue to do, pastoral visits, training seminarians, sisters and members of religious orders, building schools, evangelizing non-Christians, all of that is excellent work, the work of God. But it is not God. If God wants you to give it all up and put the work into His hands, do it and trust Him. God will do the work infinitely better than you. He will entrust the work to others who are more able than you. You have only to choose God and not the works of God. And we too, I think, are presented with a similar opportunity. Let's choose God and not the gifts of God. We go to our Mother Mary to conclude this time of prayer. We ask her to watch over us. Help us to enter into your son's prayer. Your son's love for the Father, where he makes the Father number one in his life, number one in his heart, the God who he loves above all things. Our Lady, our Mother, Mystical Rose, Teacher of Prayer, pray for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect.